and read together from Mark chapter 8, from verse 27 down to verse 38. And the Word of God says this, Jesus went out along with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He questioned His disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, saying, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And He continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to Him, You are the Christ. And He warned them to tell no one about Him. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and the third, after three days rise again. And He was stating the matter very plainly. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. But turning around and seeing His disciples, He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind Me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Let's pray, shall we? Loving Father, this morning we pray that the Spirit of God would have freedom this hour to move amongst us, to speak to us, Father, to challenge our hearts, to encourage our hearts, Father, that we might heed the call to be disciples of Jesus Christ, that we might be willing to have the mind of Christ and the obedience of Christ and the values of Christ. Father, realizing that the cross was necessary for discipleship and for salvation. And Father, we ask You that You would speak to us and teach us Your Word. We ask You these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. We've been looking at the book of Mark for quite a number of months now, and we've worked our way through, and we've hit chapter 8. And in chapter 8, there's a massive shift in emphasis as Mark writes and puts together and records his gospel message for us. We have in, the, in chapters 8 and verse 27 all the way to 10 and verse 52, we have a number of predictions of Jesus' suffering. We have three predictions, and each of them gets a little more detailed and a little, little more involved. Wrapped up with that, we also have in these passages descriptions and explanations of discipleship and what it is. It's marvelous the way that Mark and the Lord Jesus draw a connection for us between uh, Jesus who is the Christ, that's Peter's uh, confession in verse 29, the necessity of suffering and death for the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and thirdly, the call of Christ for all of us to discipleship. So he connects the Christ, the cross, and discipleship, and he ties them together. And it's so important that Mark is trying to get across to his readers, his listeners, us and them, the fact that discipleship is tied to the cross of Christ. The problem that we face in the 21st century Christianity is is this. We have come for some reason to believe from discipleship and following Christ and Christianity has now taken on the emphasis that it's a confession without repentance. 
It's become a confession and belief without repentance and reformation. And what we're seeing now is the emphasis on discipleship has been put aside, and now we speak mostly of believers. And the idea of discipleship and following Christ has been put aside in the generation in which we are uh, living in. Uh, I love... There's a few moments as a parent you just get to treasure and enjoy. Last night, late last night, we were watching uh, Grand Tour, I think, and I got a text from Cameron. He's not here today because he's at a CYC camp doing some uh, camp counseling or whatever he does down with those guys serving the Lord down there. And we were talking about discipleship, and he was asking me for to prayer about different things. And he said, Dad, we've been talking about this, some of the guys around the camp, about how discipleship has been put aside, and we've come to this idea that you can just believe in Jesus, and everything will be okay, and there's no cost and no call to follow Christ. And I just kind of thrilled at the moment that me and my son were discussing these things back and forth in text messages late last night. The call to follow Christ includes the call to come and suffer as Christ did. It's a call to self-denial. It's a call to come and die with Christ. And the key to the Christian life is the cross. I said that a number of times last week, and I want to keep emphasizing that. The key to understanding this life is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I had in mind to give, cover the other three points that I mentioned last week. But given the, the just gentle warmth of the day, I think we're going to cut that down a bit and we'll make it a little shorter and get you home into some cooler atmosphere quicker. But I do want to just recap what we, went, what we did last week. The central point in Mark's writing is, is verse number 33 in which he says, turning around and seeing his disciples, that's Jesus, he rebukes Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for, explains it, you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And that was Peter's problem. He had just made this great confession about who Jesus is. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. And we took four weeks to unpack all of what the Bible says about that one word, Christ. But Peter, having come out of that situation, that moment, he makes his confession, you're the Christ. And not a few minutes later, maybe it was 20 minutes later, as Jesus is teaching on the necessity of the cross, he jumps back in and his mind is set on the interests of man, not on God's interests. And he intervenes and he hinders and he objects to what Jesus is doing. He even takes him aside and rebukes him for what he's saying. Discipleship, the title of our message is this, Discipleship is all about Christ, not about man. And the outline I gave you last week is discipleship demands the cross of Christ. Secondly, discipleship demands the mind of Christ. And we'll look at that today. Thirdly, discipleship demands the obedience of Christ. And fourthly, discipleship demands the values of Christ. If you have one of these things in your, in your thing there, just put it back. I don't know what I was doing when I did this up and I got some things massively out of order. Sorry, Grant, my fault. So you can look at the last point, seven strategies about the mind of Christ. The rest of it's all out of order. So don't worry about it. You can look if you want. You don't not bother. That's fine too. We said last week that discipleship demands the cross of Christ, and I gave you eight reasons. I think there are many, many, many more reasons why the cross was necessary, but I gave you eight reasons, and they are these. To purchase our salvation, number one, the cross is demanded. Christ must suffer to display God's love, number two. Number three, Christ must suffer to display God's justice. 
Number four, Christ must suffer to display the glory of God, defeating sin and death. Number five, the Christ must suffer to display the glory of God in raising Christ from the dead. That's our hope, the resurrection. Number six, the Christ must suffer to display the nature and extent of Christ's obedience and our obedience to the Father's will. Number seven, he must suffer to leave an example for Jesus' disciples for how we are to handle suffering, which we will inevitably face. Number eight, probably the best of all, or maybe among the best, he must suffer to display the glory of the grace of God. And that is one of the highest points of all the sufferings of the cross. It shows us and it displays to us the wonderful grace of God. Now, a couple of you asked me last week, after I'd finished, about the way I mentioned love, uh, showing the love of God in the cross. And I said some things last week that probably got misunderstood. So I want to go back. I want to clarify what I said when I said that the Christ must suffer to display God's love. Here is the wrong, the wrong understanding of God's love as displayed in the cross. The wrong understanding of the love of God is this. God loves me so much, He values me so highly that He gave His most precious thing to save me. That is a massively wrong understanding of the love of God. That's not what it means. Why did God love us? He loved us for one reason and one reason only. And it goes like this. He loved me because He loved me. You say, that just sounds a little repetitive. It's true, it is. But the, the thing is, think of it like this. I have a beautiful wife sitting over there and you say, why do I love Heather? Well, here we go. I love Heather because she's kind, she's funny, she's beautiful. My best friend, my confidant, she's my wonderful wife and mother. She... Pause and wonder. She loves me. She is gracious and she's lovely to behold. i got lots of reasons to embarrass my wife about telling you why I love her. And all of those things are inherent in Heather. And you see, the thing is, it would be wrong of me not to love her because of all those things that are inherent in her. But here's the difference. God did not love us because of something inherent in us, some value in us. He loved us because He loved us. And it magnifies and amplifies the grace of God. Think about it. We rebelled against Him. We still do. We uh, insult and offend Him every time we sin. Sin doesn't just affect us. It affects and offends and insults God. We turn away from Him and His ways all the time. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone off our own way. That's an offense against God. We disobey Him all the time. We idolize and worship everything but Him. And the Bible says in Romans 1, He gave us over to all those incredibly depreciating things as we keep turning away from God. We're self-centered. We're selfish. We're self-promoting and we're self-preserving. We fail to love God with all of our hearts, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And we fail to glorify Him with all of our hearts, our actions, our words, and our thoughts. Why would He love us? I'll tell you why. Because He looked down at us and He said, there's nothing in Nelson that makes me want to love Him. But I'm going to show Him what grace truly is. 
I'm going to show him the unmerited favor of God. And I'm going to love him just so that he can see the wonder and the glory of his grace. What are we going to do for eternity? Ephesians 1 tells us that for all of eternity, we will stand around the throne of the living God and we will praise, praise the glories of the wonders of the riches of His grace. Don't ever get the idea if you hear someone say to you, God valued you so highly, He gave His most precious possession, belonging thing to save you. It's wrong. There was nothing in you that God should set His eyes upon you and His delight upon you. He did so simply to magnify His grace. That's the love of God. And when you see Christ hanging on a cross, it's not because I deserve to be saved. It's so that I can see that me who deserve nothing but God's wrath, He loved me anyway. And that was the nature and extent of His love. I just want to clarify that. God loved us to display the riches of His grace. Well, a second main point on our four-point outline is this, that discipleship demands the mind of Christ. So what is the mind or the mindset of Christ? The mind of Christ is His delight to do God's will, to do His Father's will. The Bible describes it like this in Psalm 40 and verse 8. Speaking of Christ, it says, I delight to do Your will, O God. Jesus on a really hot day like this, walking through Samaria, stops at a well. He meets a woman. He speaks to her. Disciples go off to get something to eat. He doesn't even drink. They're discussing water and drinking, but they're so busy talking, they never get to drinking. And by the time the disciples come back, she hasn't even gotten the water yet. She's run off into the city to tell about this man she has met, the Messiah. And Jesus looks at His disciples and He says in John 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me. His delight was to do His Father's will. Now you say, where is that in this text in front of us? I don't see it. Well, let me show you. Notice verse 31. The Bible says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Where did Jesus get His teaching from? Did he sit down at night like me with a copy of the Old Testament and some paper and pens and, and write, write out some outlines and come up with some alliteration and all that? No, I don't think so. I do think totally that Jesus, uh, he certainly knew and understood the Old Testament Scriptures and he studied them and knew them well. But I also know from the book of John, chapter 12 and verse 49, tells me that Jesus only speaks the things that the Father gives him to say. What's that mean? That means His teaching comes by revelation, by inspiration from Father to Son. And as He speaks, He only, not in addition to, but only speaks the things that the Father gives Him to speak. So when He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, He is revealing to them the will of God, the cast in stone, the unbreakable, unshakable will of God to the people of God, the disciples, that he must suffer and he must go through all those terrible things, rejection and death and so on. Jesus gave those things to them as God revealed them to him. God in revealing these things was revealing to Jesus his will. Jesus said that he delighted to do God's will. Jesus was revealing the necessity of suffering on the cross and his rejection and so on. And Jesus submitted himself to do his Father's will. You say, how do you know that? Remember the garden scene? 
one of the greatest scenes in all the Bible. Almost, I say almost more poignant than the cross. Two great things Jesus said in that period of time. He said this, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's the one thing he said. The second thing he said was this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One spoke about the cup that he would drink. The other spoke of the experience in actually drinking that cup. He submitted Himself to do His Father's will. And the point for us comes out kind of in Peter's reaction. So to be clear, the mind of Christ is Jesus' delight to do God's will. And in this case, it's God's will for Him to suffer. Now notice in verse 32, Peter's reaction. It says that uh, Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. Peter rebuked Jesus, but we shouldn't throw too many stones at Peter. It's kind of like rebuking one of us for not understanding the iPhone 11G. We don't know what the iPhone 11G looks like. We've never seen one yet. And for Peter, his understanding of Christ and Messiah was very much limited. That great passage you read this morning, brother, from Isaiah 53, they saw that as the nation of Israel. All of Isaiah 42, the suffering servant songs, they saw that as the nation of Israel and all of its sufferings as they encountered exile and so on. They failed to realize that that was speaking about one man and his suffering. Their idea... Their grasp of the Messiah was a white horse, a great sword, a conquering king riding in. And all they were interested in as Jesus came was to push the Romans out, get rid of the rule, and reestablish David's throne and rule and reign over his people. What did the disciples say outside Jerusalem, up on a mountain in Galilee? He's about to go back to be with his father. What do they say? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still interested in a Messiah who's going to rule and reign. Their idea was totally different to what Jesus was. And Peter rebukes him on that understanding. But but Jesus, notice what he does. He turns back and he rebukes Peter. And he says, you know what? Your, Your mind is set on the interests of man, not the interests of God. You say, well, what are... Those two things, the interests of man and the interests of God. Well, first of all, what are the interests of man? And we can see it right in the text in front of us. Notice verse 35. He talks about there. He says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. The interest of man is self-preservation, right? We don't want to get hurt. We don't want to get killed. I had a friend when we first got our licenses in Canada. And we're talking about how people cut you off and do all kinds of nasty things. And he said... Next time someone cuts me off, I'm just going to hit the gas or the accelerator and I'm going to floor into the back of that guy and smash his car up. And I said, you will be... Yeah, sounds good to me, says Daniel. I like that idea. You know what? It's amazing. You get in that situation and every instinct acting in tenths of a second dives for the accelerator, hauls on the wheel to preserve yourself. It's something of a natural yet fallen inclination of man to preserve themselves. That's the interest of man. It's also the idea of self-exaltation. What's he say in verse number 36? If anyone gains the whole world, man has in him an inherent desire to get to the top. Watch these executives in America. Uh, They say Australians work to live. Well, Americans live to work. 
That's kind of the way the mentality is different. We here in Australia, we do our 48 or 38 hours a week. We get it done, and we're whew, out of city to go camping. Or we're up to the, the stay away in some hotel for the night, or we're out golfing, or we're out riding a motorbike, or whatever it is that we do. We work to live. But Americans, they live to work. Their whole drive is to do more work. I knew men who were playing the stock market. They'd stay up till 2 and 3 in the morning to play the NASDAQ stock exchange on the far side of the country. And they'd stay up to midnight to play another stock exchange. And their whole life was driven around this goal to gain as much for themselves as they possibly could. That's the interest of man. It's also pride. Look what he says in verse number 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. There is a sense in man, an ingrained sinful sense that wants to exalt itself and always not endure shame, not endure suffering, not endure humiliation of any kind. That's the interest of man. Well, you say, then what are the interests of God? Obedience is in the interest of God. It's obedience to the Word and the will of God. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, you may remember the story. Uh, Samuel sends King Saul out to, to defeat an enemy and to wipe them out, the Amalekites, to do away with them all. And Saul comes back and Samuel comes out to meet him and he says, Saul, what's that sound of bleeding of sheep and the lowing of cattle and the, the clopping of hooves? What's go- I can hear animals. What's wrong with this picture, Saul? And Saul says, oh, you know what? I have kept the command of the Lord. I have preserved alive the best of the animals that I may worship and offer them as an offering to God instead. And I've saved alive the king. And Samuel says this, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. God delights in obedience to His Word. Why does He delight in it? Because it glorifies Him. Because it honors Him above all else. God delights in obedience to His will. Listen, Genesis 3 It was disobedience that plunged all of humanity into sin. In Numbers chapter 20, it was disobedience on Moses' part that cost him and kept him out of the land. And for the rest of the time of the wandering around, every time Moses went to prayer, I think he pleaded with God, have mercy, have grace, let me see the land. And God finally said, enough. Don't ask me any more about this matter. And Moses was prevented from seeing the land of Israel in his, in physically, he had to see it from a distance, from a mountaintop. But disobedience cost him. In 1 Samuel 15, it was disobedience that cost King Saul the dynasty that could have lasted a thousand years if it had been obedient. It was disobedience. But, praise God, by the obedience of one man, Romans 5 and 6 talks about. It was the obedience of Christ that set us free. God delights in obedience to His will. The reason why Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You say, that's a pretty harsh condemnation, Lord. I'm not the Pharisees. I'm not the Sadducees. I'm not the Herodians. I'm not the Romans. 
Not the Levites, not the priestly people. None of them got that strong of a rebuke. But Jesus turns to Peter and He says, Get behind me, Satan. And the reason why He does that is simply this, that Peter, in rebuking Jesus, is doing exactly what Satan did in the wilderness when he tempted Him and tried to dissuade Him and turn Him away from obedience to the will of God. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Listen, discipleship demands the mind of Christ. Discipleship demands setting obedience to Him above my own will, my own desires, my own goals, and my own wants. Delighting in obedience. It's not a drudgery, by the way. Jesus didn't come through earth and just walk around like... You know how you tell your kids to do something and they don't want to do it, right? And, and they walk around the house and they're banging things and they're stomping and they're, you know, they're doing the thing, right? And, and you watch them and you're just going, you know, you, we're just asking you to do this simple thing and then smack, slam, and so on. Jesus didn't stomp around Galilee kicking rocks going, well, I guess if I have to, I have to. The Bible says, Jesus for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. He despised the shame. You know what despise means? It means to think so little of. He despised the shame and He endured the cross. And you know what He did then? When He was finished, He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, delighting in the obedience to God is not a drudgery. It was a joyful thing. Discipleship demands the mind of Christ Setting our minds on the interests of God, not the interests of man. Discipleship is to delight in the will of God, doing the will of God. Discipleship, at the end of the day, is to speak the things that God has given us to speak. And you say, well, how do we do that? How is it that we develop the mind of Christ? Well, if you have a little piece of paper, you see there's seven strategies, and they're all Bible verses, and they will not take long, I promise. Seven simple things right from Scripture about how we can develop and have the mind of Christ to set our minds on the things of God. Is it easy for a Christian to automatically do that? The answer is no, it's not automatic, and it's not easy. It doesn't happen. In fact, we're commanded repeatedly in Scripture to set our minds on the things of God, not the things of man. Let me show you. Number one, strategy, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I just read it. It says, We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross and so on. Listen, He is our example. He isn't just the Son of God. He's also the Son of Man. He was a real human being with flesh and blood and hair and teeth and bones. He knew what it was to struggle with obedience. The very fact that He sat in the garden and on His face in an agony He prayed, Father, not My will, but Thine be done. We see the full depth of the humanity in that moment. You don't want to split them apart, humanity and deity, but you see the humanity of Christ. You struggle to obey? Congratulations, you're one of the group. We all struggle to obey. But we fix our eyes on Jesus. We look to Him as the example for how He expects us to obey. He calls us to follow Him. Not just to have a home in heaven, but He calls us to follow Him because He wants us not just to enjoy the benefits, to be just like Him. Number two, Romans 12 and 1 and 2, it says this. No, actually... 
Let's go. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5 says this, We destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of, knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. You know what the mindset requires? Taking the thoughts captive. Putting them away. It also requires replacing them with new thoughts. We'll look at that in a second. But we need to stop. I don't know about what your struggle is. I'll tell you what mine is. It's my mind. You say, how do you struggle with your mind? There's not much to work with. You're right. There isn't much to work with, but I still struggle with it. I struggle with knowing and I struggle with thinking. And my mind sometimes runs away with me in lofty speculations or not so lofty speculations. And I got to stop. And there are times when I'm driving around, even when I'm by myself, and sometimes when I'm with other people, I'll just say, no, no, don't do that. Don't go there. And Paul says, listen, we must destroy those speculations and take captive every thought and bring it in submission to the obedience of Christ. The third thing is this, Romans 12, 1 and 2, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is. It isn't just getting rid of the evil thoughts, it's also putting in place the godly biblical thoughts. It's renewing our mind, soaking it in Scripture. It's like marinating meat, right? Take a nice steak, you stick it in a nice pile of pool and marinate, leave it overnight, and it takes on the whole flavor of that marinade. And you can taste it as you eat it. So we soak our minds in Scripture that our minds might reproduce. We might understand what the will of God is. So when we feel a sense that God is calling us to one thing or another, we can follow and obey having soaked our minds in Scripture. We get rid of the old thinking. We put in place the new thinking. Number four, Philippians 2 verse 13. We plead in prayer for God to work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We pray that God would do His work in us. I don't want to think like the old Nelson. I want to think like disciple Nelson. I want to think like Christ-like Nelson. That's what we're called to do. So we plead in prayer for God to work in us to change those desires inside of our heads, to change that thinking. Philippians 4.13 You think you do it in your own strength. It's a hopeless case. But you know what the Bible tells us in Philippians 4.13? We trust God for the strength. He promises the strength to do all things through Him. It's not in your strength. Jesus didn't ask Peter to put his mind on the things of God in his own strength. Jesus was asking Peter to set his mind on the things of God in his strength. It's the same for us. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. You probably knew I was going to go there. Because we have been raised up with Christ, we keep seeking the things above where Christ is oh, seated at the right hand of God and we set our minds on the things above. It's exactly the same thing that Jesus was saying. Peter, you've set your, thing, your mind on the things of man. Paul's saying, don't set your mind on the things of man. Set them on the things above. Set them on God. It's also obedience. Having the mind of Christ is dependence in prayer. It's faith in God, but it's also obedience to God. There is a part to play in our sanctification. We need to obey. Seven strategies. The last one, John 14 and 16, the two chapters together, they promised the Holy Spirit who will come as our helper. We have not been left alone to do this. 
He has given us the Holy Spirit who will be with us forever. He will abide with us. He will teach us all things. He will remind us of the things that Jesus said. He is the Spirit of truth. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit enabling and empowering us to have the mind of Christ because discipleship demands the cross. Discipleship demands the mind of Christ. And as we're going to see next week, discipleship demands the obedience of Christ. And we're never going to learn and understand what true obedience is without the mind of Christ. Peter, you got it wrong. You misunderstood, yes. But your mind was set on the things of man. And the great problem I see in the Christianity that's around this place in this time and this age is that we have become Christians who have signed on the dotted line. We've made a profession of faith. We consider our eternity like the ultimate retirement plan in which there's no cost or no obligation. All the fees have been paid. Everything's set aside for us. We can live however we like and know we're going to heaven. That's a lie. It is an unbiblical, ungodly, devilish lie. That is not the gospel. The gospel is a call to come and follow Jesus Christ. The gospel is a call to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and go where He went and live as He lived. It's a call to a radical change. And we're going to go into it more, but I don't want to end on a bad note, on a heavy note. Some of you could easily say, demand, demand, demand. Nelson, you're putting a whole heavy load on us. You're making a great big weight. You're almost bordering on a gospel of works and the things that you're saying. Listen, the call to discipleship is an amazing grace of God extended toward us. Listen. The load of sin that we bear outside of discipleship and following Christ is infinitely greater and more heavy and more difficult to bear. The guilt of sin is far more on our hearts and minds. It weighs so much heavier than the yoke that we are called to bear. What does Jesus say in Matthew 11, I think it is? Take your Bibles, flip over to Matthew 11. Matthew 11 and verse number 28. Some of you will know this already. Beautiful passage of Scripture. We often use in the Gospel. What does Jesus say? Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen, to obey Christ in the power of the Spirit, armed with the Word of God, with Jesus walking beside us and showing us the way to go, that is so much easier of a burden and a yoke for us to bear than the guilt of sin and the pain of an eternal Loss without Christ. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. In other words, fasten yourself to me. It's like two oxen standing side by side and they put the big bar across their shoulders and they fasten the yoke around their necks and and pin it through. And they walk along side by side. And what they usually do is training younger oxen is they put an old experienced oxen And then they put a younger oxen along side by side. And as the older oxen responds to the commands of the Lord behind him, the younger oxen learns to walk as the older oxen turns. And for the first little while, the poor young oxen just kind of this way and this way as as the old ox turns without waiting for his approval. 
But eventually the younger oxen understands the commands alongside the older oxen and they begin to move in perfect sequence and in harmony together. Listen, Christ has called us to come and share His yoke and take on His burden. And it's a light burden. When we think that He gives us the Spirit of God living in us to empower us and enable us and give us the joy in obedience, it's nothing compared to the yoke of sin. Or I should say the great chained weight of sin that we bear. I love the scene in the book of... um, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian's got a great big load in his back, and I love that the old drawings have Christian, he's kind of bent over like this, and he's got a, a stick, and he's got his great big load on his back, and he's walking through the walk of life, and he finally comes to a hill called Calvary, and as he makes his way up at the very top of the hill, there is a cross, and there is one hanging on the cross, and as he looks in faith to the cross, amazing thing, the, the catch is undone, the belt's unstrapped, and the weight falls off and goes tumbling away behind him and he can, can't see it anymore. Listen, outside of Christ we carry a load of sin. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's necessary for me to go to a cross to suffer many things. I totally agree with you, Bill, what he was saying about the sufferings of Christ so much more than spear and thorns and crowns and nails, and whip. The suffering of the agony of the Lord Jesus as He was cut off from His Father. It was necessary. Why? So He could call us to come and follow Him. To walk where He walked. To take up our cross like He did. To deny ourselves like He did. To obey to the absolute limits of obedience which He did. You ever have a boss who occasionally gives you an assignment and you know that he has never done that himself, ever. And you look at the boss, you think to yourself, you try it. It's nearly impossible. And your boss uses his authority to give you some horrible job to do that he's never done himself. I love the Lord Jesus. One of the reasons why I love Him is this. He did not give me a call to follow that He Himself had not already experienced. He called me to do the very thing that He did. Yes, the scope. And yes, the circumstances are different. I don't die to pay for Bill's sin and him from me. Jesus died for all of our sins, but He calls us to come and die. He calls us to come and suffer. Christianity, the way we present it now, is like a retirement package. But it's not like that. It's a life that begins now and carries on and one day this world, this sight will give way to eternity. And for us it should be the smoothest, simplest transition because we who have walked in obedience will simply respond to one final call. Come up here and we'll go to be with the Lord Jesus. What an amazing Savior we have. Amen. We're going to sing one more song before we close for the morning. It's the one we, we taught you or tried to teach you last week. Uh, for those of you who are Irish, you will like the tune. The tune is, I hope uh, this is an Irish tune. It's uh, Danny Boy. The tune is Danny Boy, and the words are this. Listen, what grace is mine that he who dwells in endless light called through the night to find my distant soul and from his scars poured mercy that would plead for me that I might live and in his name be known. 
so I will go wherever He is calling me. I lose my life to find my life in Him. I give my all to gain the hope that never dies. I bow my heart, my heart take up my cross, and follow Him. Isn't that a great song? We're going to get the guys to come up and we'll sing together. Loving Father, this morning we pray that that song that we sing would not just be words of a song to a beautiful tune, but Father, it would be the commitment, the consecration of our hearts to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and follow Him wherever He leads us. Father, we thank You and we praise this morning for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank You that He was willing to go all the way to a cross. Father, we thank You that He despised the shame. Father, He endured the suffering. And even in the heights of His agony, Father, He knew that He would one day be restored. Father, we give You thanks that the way of the cross is a way of suffering. But Father, we also give You thanks that the way of the cross is freedom from guilt of sin, is freedom from the penalty of sin. Father, we thank You that He has called us not just to eternal, ultimate retirement plan, but Father, we thank You that He has called us to live for Him. Father, we plead with You. Do a work in all of our hearts. Father, we pray that You would bring the Scriptures home to bear on our hearts that we would know and understand the truth and the deep meaning of them. Father, we pray, even for the little ones, the younger ones here this morning, that they would understand the truth of the Gospel, that they would turn and follow You no matter what the cost. Father, we lift up the Lord Jesus and we glorify Him Father, discipleship is indeed all about Him. And we want to say, O God, this morning that we love Him because He first loved us and He gave Himself for us. Father, we thank You for these things. We give You thanks for our time together. And we ask You now, Father, for Your blessing. In Jesus' name, Amen.